Hello everybody, how's it going? Welcome back, welcome in to another episode of the Politics and Punk Rock Podcast. I am Andrew for America, and I wanted to start the show today with just uh, another clip. Uh, last episode, uh, there's something about Billy. We were talking about Bill Gates and, um, you know, all associated stories uh, about the man. Uh, you know, <laughs> you really don't have to look far on the interwebs, on the internets out there, people, to... Uh, to uh, accumulate a pretty clear uh, theoretical picture of what it, whatever it is that's going on with our, our friend Billy, little Billy. Uh, I found it interesting that his dad was uh, a member affiliated with Planned Parenthood and talked about um, having his theory about if there weren't any birth defects or whatever and what did he say? Something about women would have or, or uh, couples would have less children. I don't know, man. I don't know, but there's something going on with <laughs> with Bill Gates, people. Uh, here, I want to play a clip. I don't want to talk about Bill Gates all episode. This is going to be kind of just a, uh, a continuation of um, previous episodes. I'm going to play some clips that are just kind of like continuing themes with previous episodes so this is kind of going to be just like a little recap show where i'm going to just continue talking about different things i've already talked about on the show in the past so uh here we go this is going to be uh from another documentary about bill gates that i found and i just kind of liked uh how this gentleman sums up uh the bill gates situation so here we go Bill Gates was speaking at a security conference in Europe where, by the way, they're doing all kinds of creepy stuff in the backlash to immigration and terrorism and just the rise of hysteria throughout the whole region. And he talked about how health threats are now interlaced with security threats because the terrorists of tomorrow are going to be using genetic engineering technology and computers to create synthetic viruses. We also face a new threat that the next epidemic uh, has a good chance of originating on a computer screen of a terrorist intent on using genetic engineering to create a synthetic version of the smallpox virus or a contagious, contagious and highly deadly strain of flu. And he paints a very grim and dark picture of what would happen if a respiratory spread pathogen were to basically hit a population. And he explains how it would kill 30 million people in just one year. Whether it occurs by the quirk of nature at the hand of a terrorist, epidemiologists show through their models that a respiratory spread pathogen would kill more than 30 million people in less than a year. And there is a reasonable probability of that taking place. And the thing that makes this such a disturbing scenario is the words he used, the hints he makes that, well, it could be a quirk of nature or it could be a terror attack. You just never know when behind it all, there's a mentality and an organization that wants to reduce the population and that relies on fear to control political events. And while ostensibly... Uh, this is a security issue to be prevented. What makes this creepy statement even more diabolical is the fact that Bill Gates is the very one who's made these veiled statements before about vaccines lowering the population by 10 or 15 percent. The world today has 6.8 billion people. 
that's headed up to about nine billion. Now, if we do a really great job on new vaccines, healthcare, reproductive health services, we could lower that by perhaps ten or fifteen percent. The disease itself can also be spread by the vaccines because there's blowback, there's resistance, and, and there's a triggering of autoimmune effects that has the possibility of spreading a viral mutation that no one is going to be prepared for. That's the kind of thing that Bill Gates is talking about. He's in a class of people who've called for a population reduction. He's in a class of people that use shocks and tremors and events in media to make world events happen and to dictate from the top down. There was a professor at Arizona State University that joked about the movie Contagion and said people should go out and create better viruses using genetic engineering to help with overpopulation. He actually joked about the very act of terrorism that Bill Gates is warning about in this clip. Uh, should we concern ourselves with feeding 8 plus billion in the first place or should we allow natural forces of carrying capacity? Has anybody seen Contagion? <laughs> That's the answer. Go out and use genetic engineering to create a better virus. There's a mentality among the people pushing these things, testing them in labs, developing them, and this is the new threat. Genetic engineering and synthetic viruses are going to come into play, and that the technology is now basically in many, many hands. It's spread out, the threat's diffuse, and it could come from anywhere. The 2009 swine flu pandemic was a huge test to see how the population would react uh, to basically uh, a strain of the swine flu that could only have been engineered and artificially mutated into what ended up being released. And to top that all off, while you had just fear gripping headlines and just people on the verge of panic not knowing what to do, you had a whistleblower come forward to expose the fact that World Health Organization officials had been colluding with vaccine makers and talking about wanting to have a level 5 pandemic and wanting to have a big public anxiety about it so they could drive vaccine cells, the swine flu, and for many other potential pathogens. And this outbreak could be any number of things. He's talking about a really deadly, easily spread, artificially created flu, a bird flu, swine flu, any other strain. Or he's talking about a new synthetic smallpox. The labs have the archives of the naturally occurring smallpox, which has been officially wiped out in the world. And now they have the next generation sitting on the shelf, waiting for accidents to happen and waiting for malintent. For maximum safety and to prevent the spread of the virus. Please comply with health authorities during routine vaccination and physical inspections. Remember, a healthy tomorrow depends upon your cooperation and compliance. Be well. All right. Wow. Isn't isn't that uh, outro clip there? You know, very dramatic with the siren, and she's, you know, I mean, that might be that might be our dystopian pandemic world future, people, and that's why we need an intellectual elite and world bankers. Remember the David Rockefeller quote? You know, the 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 total control of the world by the economic elite and world bankers, intelligent elite, is surely preferable to the national auto-determination practiced in past centuries. What does auto-determination mean? It means countries making decisions decisions for themselves. People 
world government is coming. We shall have it. And this whole clip about Bill Gates is just, you know, believe it or not, uh, you know, maybe maybe he is a benevolent ph philanthropist who's trying to to solve all the problems of humankind. Maybe he's trying to perfect the human race. Maybe he's trying to perfect the human race at the risk of killing a lot of people because you have to test, you have to trial, you have to trial and error. And, <laughs> you know, they found a way to do it against people's wills. They've lied about it. They've, they've, um, you know, hoodwinked people into believing their claims. Now, now they've done it in Africa. They, he's done it in India. This guy says they collude with pharmaceutical companies. The world, the world planners. The more the plans fail, the more the planners plan. Remember when Reagan said that? You know, and the reason why, I, you know, where I'm going with this, people, is just this episode today is I'm going to kind of present some different ideas and I'm going to summarize them all in the end of my podcast as just, you know, my personal outlook. And this is point one of today's show is that Bill Gates is just one example, people. He's he's one example of a person in the point one percent. You know, this guy in this clip you just heard, he said a class of people. Bill Gates is one of many in a class of people that think that they can run your life for you better than you can run it yourself. You are disposable. You are, quote unquote, the masses. And remember what Reagan said in his speech? You know, that's, that's a term, that's a label that we haven't applied to ourselves in America. We are free, sovereign citizens, right? Wasn't that the goal? Wasn't that the point of America? You think that freedom's going to start increasing in the 21st century? Or do you think it's going to continue to decrease? I don't know. All I know is there's something about Billy. And uh, I'm just going to leave that right there. We'll see how uh, the divorce uh, proceedings pan out. We'll see how the assets are split up. It's going to be quite interesting. Quite interesting. Uh, okay, so let's move on. Um, this next clip I want to play, uh, I was going to play it on um, the Manly P. Hall Part 2 episode. Uh, when I was talking about secret societies, I, and I forgot to put it in there, but I'm gonna play it for you guys right now. And this is continuing with my my theme for the show today, is that you know these secret societies, you know, are, are go to the elite schools, the Jesuit schools. They get taught things that not everybody gets taught. Out of the pool of people that go to these schools, a very select few of those get to join and get invited to the secret societies and these are the people that go on to become world leaders around the world. So my point is, people, it's a big club and you ain't in it. Representative democracy, direct democracy, I mean, it's a joke. We now live in an oligarchy, not an oligopoly. I made that mistake in a previous podcast, by the way. I meant oligarchy. The Princeton study says we now live in an oligarchy. Um, and I can't believe I was saying that September 11th was happened in 1991. I think I said it for like two episodes. What a stupid idiot. It's, it was 2001, obviously. In 91, I was still in high school. I don't know why I made that brain fart. But anyway, um, so here we go with this clip. So this is an African-American man that got invited to join one of the big secret societies here in the United States. And he has a story to tell you. 
And his story is very interesting because he, he's an African-American man. And he tells you in this clip, like, you know, it's not, it was not normal for someone that looked like me to get invited into some of these secret, secret societies. And I'm sure this was a while ago, so I'm sure that's probably changed. I'm sure the secret societies are woke now. <laughs> I mean, we know the intelligence community is woke now. Everybody's woke. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, unbelievable. So here we go. This is uh, by a gentleman. I think his name is Ian Smith, I think. We'll, we'll find out here in a second. But uh, take a listen to this guy's story. Very interesting. Look. Little snapshot glimpse you're about to take into one of this country's secret societies. Here we go. Secret societies are a great source for conspiracy theories and Hollywood blockbusters. Legends add to the mystique. One thing is certain, a secret society is about elevating members above others, us versus them. In the Ivy League, secret societies are the elite among the elite, and members often become world leaders. I sat down with one man who is telling his story, and he's not your typical Ivy League secret society member. Shadow societies have existed for centuries. At one time, Christianity was a secret society to avoid Roman persecution. Founding fathers like Washington and Franklin were Freemasons. The Mafia is a secret society. Our membership has its pleasures, its hardships, and sometimes its pain. There are many reasons to join, but at the core is status, favoritism, and power. A toast to the successful progression of skulls. Above any other. Above any other. The movie The Skulls captured the imagination of one of these secret societies, Skull and Bones at Yale University. The film hit the box office in 2000 as a Skull and Bones member was running for office, George W. Bush. Other members included his father and grandfather, as well as Senator John Kerry. Skull and Bones was started in 1832 when people were starting to become suspicious of organizations like the Freemasons. So two men decided to make their college fraternity a secret society. Alfonso Taft, father of President Howard Taft, and a merchant named William Huntington Russell who made his fortune transporting opium. For centuries, secret societies like these were for white men primarily from established and wealthy families. Smith, one of the few African Americans chosen for one of Harvard's secret societies, the Delphic Club. Why did they pick you? You know, it's been several decades since I was a member of the club or joined the club, and I have no idea why they chose me. I am everything that a club is not. I'm African American. Uh, I was not wealthy by any stretch of imagination. I come from a working class family. I had no legacy whatsoever at Harvard or in this kind of elite world. I don't know why they chose me, and they don't tell you why they, cho they chose you. Under his dorm room door in 1988, he received an invitation with three blue torches. That card opened a door to a world most never see. You do learn very quickly how important these clubs are, not just socially, but historically speaking. And they're very different from fraternities in the sense of they are more formal, uh, they tend to be more elegant, um, they have a lot more money. Money, women, parties, exotic trips, and cars. I remember things that happened in the club 
that were they brought to the fore now in the environment and the era that we are in, those people who participate in those activities would be held very accountable and would have a negative impact. Plus, secrecy gives an air of prestige. Very few get behind the door of the Delphic. Sure, Ian Smith was a great student and athlete, but he was not like the others. He grew up in a working-class neighborhood in Danbury, Connecticut, with a single mom. You know, I think I was a, a pretty fun guy and, you know, affable. I didn't have a lot of hang-ups, and so I think that the guys just probably liked me. But were you conflicted going in, knowing the history of these groups and how they typically had viewed African-Americans or even people who didn't come from the power structure of the East? Yes. For years, these clubs have kept out people like myself. African-Americans, people who don't come from money. And so here I was almost feeling like I was betraying my past because I was joining a club that stood for things that either demeaned or didn't represent who, where I came from. And so, yeah, that was problematic for me, but my curiosity won over. Did you justify it by saying, hey, I'm, maybe I can reform this group from the inside? So I felt like I'm not going to sit here and paint myself as a radical, like I had this kind of you know, revolutionary idea going into these clubs because I was just a kid. But I did feel like, well, maybe if I get in and they realize that guys like me are good guys, even though I'm not rich and though I'm African-American, that we're good guys and like to hang around with, with, with me and maybe they'll let more in. The Delphic Club is a secret society at Harvard. This is the Delphic Mansion. As you can see, there's no sign on the front of it. Dr. Ian Smith says there's top-notch security here because over the years, people have tried to break in to discover the rare books, artwork, and valuable artifacts that are inside. It's part of the plot of Smith's new book, The Ancient Nine, an elite secret society working within the secret Delphic Club. The story reveals the thoughts and motives behind young men who are already in the competitive world of the Ivy League. For most people who go to a school like Harvard, you're gonna do all right, right? And so what kind of leg up does this give you? The intimacy of these clubs allows you to have access to extremely powerful people who are not powerful while you're undergraduates, because you're all undergrads, but when you get out of school and they become the head of different commissions in the government, they become CEOs, they become big partners of law firms, you know, you're dealing with some pretty heavy people and because you're a club member, you have direct a club member, you have direct access to them. The Delphic was reportedly started by J.P. Morgan, one of the wealthiest and most powerful businessmen in the world in the late 19th century. Some people believe these secret societies are part of a master plan to control world events. The reality is these Ivy League secret societies have generated leaders from Wall Street to Washington, a world that includes banking with dictators or CIA assassinations. That doesn't mean they're driven by some secret handshake from college. As students, some are driven by a thirst for power, others by family legacy. Smith says he was driven primarily by curiosity. I come from the other side of the tracks. And so I was interested to see, you know, how they talk, what do they do on their downtime? What does it look like? Did you find the kids of wealthy families were perhaps not as happy as you would think they would be as a kid who was not wealthy? They were what I expected in the sense of, you know, these elite, very privileged uh, kids uh, who had a very different lifestyle uh, that to me was very surreal. His first novel is somewhat autobiographical and infuses a lesson 
for the other 99% of young men and women who will never get into an Ivy League school, let alone a secret society. When you are a grounded person and you are confident in who you are and what you are, the environment will not have such an impact on you that you lose the core of your being. The clubs are not affiliated with Harvard. The university has tried to shut them down for not being inclusive. Currently, they've taken their biggest push ever to try to squash these clubs. That is, you can't be a captain of a varsity athletic team. You can't hold a student government position. Uh, and also, they will not give you recommendations for scholarships like the Rhodes Scholar or something like that. They won't give you these referrals and recommendations. So they're trying, but at the end of the day, these clubs, in my opinion, will be around forever because these clubs are independent organizations, whether the university likes them or not. And what about the ancient nine, that elite core within a secret society? The ancient nine represents a group of anonymous men who are basically a secret society within the secret society. They've been rumored for many, many years. I will not say whether or not they exist. In secret societies, sometimes the secret isn't about the secret, but whether you can keep it. Smith didn't. He didn't give away all the Delphic secrets, but as he said too much, he says he's not worried. The line between corporate networking and world domination is often set in conspiracy theorist paranoia and Hollywood producers' imagination. All right, yeah, maybe. Maybe it is all imagination. But what a fascinating story, huh? This guy got into, you know, one of the secret societies, the Delphic Club. And, you know, it'd be interesting to see uh, uh, where Mr. Ian Smith is now. I wonder if he got, if he experienced any backlash from... Uh, making public comments about being invited into the secret society. Hmm. I don't know. Maybe I'll look that up. <clears throat> uh, so, you know, and it's, it's, you know, when you think back to, I kind of wanted to relate that little piece back to, like I said, the Manly P. Hall episodes where, you know, this, this guy, Ian Smith's talking about, you know, that they've been broken into, these secret societies on campus because they have all these ancient artifacts and ancient books. And what did it, Manly P. Hall, remember? He was, he was, uh, um, funded by, I forget the, the woman, the family name, but the old, the people that had all the oil money. Uh, and she sent him around the world to go look for ancient books and ancient artifacts. So you put the two and two together and I think you could make the, the argument that many of these people in these secret societies that are working, that are, are, you know, running the world eventually all have ties to non-Christian, pagan, occult, esoteric philosophies that transcend their belief in, you know, God you know, or, you know, it's it's like they're like pretend Christians, in a way. Not all of them. I'm not saying everybody. I'm not saying they all don't believe in Christianity. Uh, I'm just saying that the majority of them profess that they are Christians, whether or not they actually are or practice it or actually believe it, which is the most important part, is another story. 
I think you'd be hard pressed to find anyone that takes it uh, takes Christianity Christianity uh, to the fundamentalist level. You know, to where they believe that this is the actual word of God in the Bible, and He is our you know Jesus is our Savior, and uh, etc. You know the stories. And that was you know that used to be Christianity used to be a secret society in the Roman Empire, and then it got a little out of control, and then eventually. It became the Holy Roman Empire. But the people that were against Christianity at the time were, were, were worshiping. You know, there was a huge, uh, or, there was a lot of oral traditions and, uh, you know, religions from different belief systems around the world. Like Christianity was the minority at this time. So, you know, it's, it's feeble-minded and... You know, to well, it's it's just feeble-minded to make the argument that Christianity was the only ticket in town back then. A lot of people believe that, and <laughs> it's just uh, it's just not the truth. But anyway, moving on. Uh, you know, I just find it interesting. I find it interesting that you know, Manly P. Hall, the esoteric philosophies uh, are affiliated with you know some of these secret societies, and you know, it just makes you think. Makes you think, like you know, there's 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 Christianity for the masses, you know, or whatever religion, you know, you could say Muslim, Buddhist, whatever, right? And then there's this other belief system that the people running the show believe. You know, it's just, they really do believe that they are cut from a finer cloth, people. I don't understand. I've said it before. I've said it a million times. I don't understand how you people still hang in there and have, you know, keep this blind faith in Republicans and Democrats, the authoritarians, the, tyra- the the tyrannical oligarchs that control and dominate your your personal life and your personal freedom. Now that that's it. Like I said, your bill of rights has been usurped, small usurpations over time. The United States is not a free country anymore, people. I would make the argument that it is not. Yeah, we have the rule of law still, which is, you know, negotiable. Depends on how much money you got in your pocket. It's, you know, this country's becoming just as corrupt as every other country in the world. I'm telling you, people, if we let America go down the drain, you know, you know, you can kiss security and safety goodbye. Just, just, you're going to have no choice. You're going to have to sack up. And you're going to have to learn survival skills. You're going to have to, you know, these doomsday preppers, they, they probably have the right idea, people. Because, you know, it only takes one EMP blast from some foreign nation to have all the computer systems and electronics go down. And then they unleash a pandemic on you. And now, I mean, people, if, if there's a small group of people in this world that are colluding and conspire, conspiring to reduce the Earth's population, uh, it, it's, they're going to do it very easily. And, and it's our, we've already seen now the COVID pandemic has proven to me beyond a shadow of a doubt that the people are too stupid and too uneducated and too unmotivated to seek truth and to solve problems and to want to desire to be a part of the solution. You know, it's like, like Arnold Schwarzenegger says in Terminator 1, as the Terminator, when they're talking about the fall of... of you know, human control of the world and the, and the machines took over. He said, it's in your nature 
to destroy yourselves. Maybe, maybe, maybe that's the truth. Maybe it is in our human nature to destroy ourselves. We shall see. We shall see. I'm going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about central banks. I'm going to play a clip by a guy named Richard Werner, who was interviewed by, uh, I forget the woman's name, but she, uh, you know she's got a podcast. I'll, I'll bring it up here in a minute. Where I think she talks about economies and banking and uh, finance and all things money. Um, fabricated, fiat, created, bullshit, currency, and otherwise. <laughs> so I'm going to play an interesting clip by Richard Werner. And he's going to tell you that, uh, you know, point two of my thesis uh, for my summation points for this uh, previous show recap we're having today is that the central banks, the World Bank, the IMF, Federal Reserve, etc., has been tanking economies around the world for many, many years. They did it in England. They did it in Japan. You're going to hear a story about Japan. Uh, they've done it in the United States. It's about to happen in the United States again. They've done it all over the world. So here, uh, we're, I'm going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about money, finance, central banks, and fiat currency. When we come back. All right. Welcome back. Um... <clears throat> So one of the positive uh, aspects of uh, the new coming global government, you know, new world order, whatever you want to call it, globalization, <clears throat> uh, one positive thing about it is I think we're going to start hearing stories about uh, what's going on in other countries. And I think that is one of the biggest most egregious failures of American media is their complete lack of coverage of the world stage. All you hear about is America and everything that's negative about it. We should be different uh, and we should hate our neighbor because of race, because of religion, because of sexual orientation, uh, divide and conquer, you know, identity politics, yada, yada, right? You guys know all that. Got to be smarter than that stuff, right? That that's that's the show. That's the propaganda. That's what they want you to think and believe, right? <clears throat> so, um, and one of the things that uh, you're going to learn when you start learning about um, world news in this coming 21st century uh, Orwellian world is you're going to you're going to learn that other countries have had similar. Uh, economic problems as the United States. You're going to hear uh, stories about central banking and about fiat currency and about how, you know, where's the money come from? You know, where's the money come from? How is wealth created? You know, what creates value? What assigns value? All these things, right? Uh, anyway, so I'm going to play this clip. This is a gentleman. Uh, his name is Richard Werner, and he is on a podcast let me bring up the woman's name here real quick because i would not be doing her show justice by not mentioning it so here we go give me one second uh her name is danielle d martino booth 
and she has a show. Um, I forget what the show is called, but anyway, you can look her up. Danielle DiMartino Booth uh, interviews Richard Werner, who is about to give you his CV. Uh, CV is a European rest of the world term for resume for you ignorant Americans out there. Um, and he's going to talk about his theories and about being, you know, on the ground in Japan in the early nineties, late eighties, I think it is where they, you know, had one of the biggest bubbles in the history of the world. Uh, and he's going to talk about that and he's going to end uh, with his thesis that all the policies that the central banks were putting into place, uh, we need to, they needed to actually do the opposite and they didn't and they consequently sunk themselves into one of the worst depressions the world has ever seen since the American Great Depression. So here we go. Uh, this is uh, Richard Werner interview with Daniel Danielle DiMartino Booth. Here we go. happy to be here in Boca Raton uh, with my newest guest. I'm absolutely honored and thrilled to have with us today, uh, Richard Werner. He is a member of Lineker College at the University of Oxford, uh, and he's also a university professor in banking and finance. I'm going to let him get into his CV because it's gigantic. Um, the abridged version of his education is that he holds a degree from the London School of Economics and a doctorate from Oxford. Uh, where he intersected with destiny, once he gives us his CV, that's where I want to start. I want to start on the ground in Tokyo in the summer of 1989, where you were poised to witness history as we know it. But first, tell us a little bit more about where you teach. Um, I teach in, in England at De Montfort University in Leicester, and also I've been uh, asked to teach in Shanghai at Fudan University. I have also a number of more short-term invitations to a number of universities. And of course, I'm also very much interested in financial markets. I'm a um, UK-regulated asset manager. I've, I've run global macro funds, including for Bear Stearns Asset Management. Um, and um, I'm, for the last few years, um, Essentially, um, my hobby has been to set up community banks in the UK. We will talk more about that because you do have another book out there uh, that is not Princess of the Yen, where you explore deeply what happened in the United Kingdom with its property markets, with its banking system. And, and we'll get to that because I think there are probably many parallels to be drawn. Uh, but first, let's take a walk back in time. You hear the anecdotes uh, Pebble Beach and all of the trophy properties and the, the, the massive outflow of money that left Tokyo and the Imperial Palace was worth as much as the state of California. You hear these things, but it's impossible to, to put them in your mind if you weren't there, but you were there. What was it like? You were there before the bubble burst. And what That's took true. you there? That's true. Well, um, well, what took me there was uh, that I couldn't go to China, to Shanghai, to Fudan University, because I had a place there to learn Chinese. It was a bit ahead of, of, of things at the time, because it was still, um, you know, the Iron Curtain hadn't fallen. But I, I thought China's going to rise and I want to learn Chinese. But it wasn't possible suddenly in 89 uh, for various reasons. If you go back, um, martial law declared and things like that. I went to Tokyo. Uh, 
initially for Deutsche Bank, and that was in in the summer of 1989, at the peak of the Japanese um, legendary, gigantic stock market bubble. Um, and um, yeah, saw that at, at close range. In the end, um, just so you see what where this was then leading, I, I ended up staying in Japan for quite a while. Uh, in total, 12 years. Um, various doors opened. I was at the University of Tokyo. I was um, the first Shimomura Fellow at the Japan Development Bank, one of the government um, banks that had been involved in the high growth era in Japan, establishing post-war um, recovery and very high growth for several decades. Um, and then I was at the Bank of Japan. That's why I had my uh, introduction into central banking. You know, what was it like in 89? Well, one important feature is, if you think back, nobody called it a bubble at the time. It wasn't considered a bubble. It was just, you know, that's the situation. That's the level of stock prices and land prices. It's Japan. And remember the stories how Japan was going to take over the world and it's going to be the next 21st century is going to be the Japanese century. Japanese money had been flooding out of the country um, across the the world in the 1980s. And of course, people tend to extrapolate from these past trends. And you know, then it was just all the way up for Japan. Um, but that was clearly not going to happen. Um, and I just come back from Japan in 91. The stock market had fallen quite a bit um, down by, you know, by almost um, well, by over 20%, 30%, approaching 50%, so big, big falls. But the economy was still um, expanding. GDP growth was 7%, 7%. Interest rates were around 7% as well. Short rates, long rates. Um, and so what was everyone saying? Well, the Bank of Japan came out in 91 and was saying, okay, we're going to lower interest rates. And so for everyone, just based on the standard analysis, you know, all the strategies were coming out and we're saying, well, buy Japanese stocks because, well, the economy is clearly strong. We know Japan is strong, good fundamentals, companies are strong. The stock market has fallen so much and now they're lowering rates. And of course, the traditional standard analysis, conventional analysis is if you've got lower interest rates, that's good for the economy. It's good for stock markets. That's what they're doing. And they had a long way to lower them, which they did follow. Um, now, that's the moment that my first paper uh, was published at back at Oxford when I just come back in uh, September, October 91. And my conclusion was the opposite. Namely, and, and also remember, at the time, the top 20 banks in the world were all Japanese banks <laughs> by assets, you know, these huge balance sheets. Um, and my conclusion was, don't buy Japanese stocks. Japanese banks are likely to go bankrupt, and Japan is likely to move into the biggest recession since the Great Depression. That, that was sort of written up in The Economist. I had the job offers, went back to Tokyo then in um, 93, started as chief economist early 94 with the British firm Jardine Fleming Security since it's been bought up by JP Morgan. And my thesis was um, that um, essentially what has created the bubble was switching into reverse and was going to crush the banking system. But for a long time, 
people thought this can't be true, it's impossible. And I was really amazed by how long people hung on to the old story of the great Japan and the economy is going to be strong. It's just a small dip and, you know, the, the fundamentals are so strong. To me, it was quite obvious. And, you know, I guess we're, we should talk about the mechanism I saw behind this because that really taught me about how economies everywhere work. It's the banking system and how central banks really interact there with the banking system and how um, the the credit mechanism in the banking system is, is the core mechanism. And all that was, was all contracting. Um, I put out an estimate in, in the early 90s of the size of the bad debts I was expecting in the banking system. Now, in those days, people had tiny, tiny uh, forecasts of bad debts. It wasn't really a topic, bad debts in the banking system. Um, and my forecast was, well, it's going to be uh, in percentages um, around 25% of bank balance sheets, wow. which also made it you know, approximately um, similar percentage of GDP, you know, one year's annual GDP. So substantial, because we know capital is usually 10% or less for the bigger banks, less than 10%. So certainly anything above 10% in bad debts is the end of the banking system, really. That's insolvency. <laughs> exactly. Um, now, ironically, by the end of the decade of the 1990s, um, everyone had become so negative on Japan, they had bad debt estimates, which were much larger than my original ones from the early 90s. And, and then I was told, you know, this is wildly too large. But by the end, the consensus had become so negative. But if you go back and actually check the figures, my original figures were the correct ones. Um, it was around um, 80 trillion yen in bad debts and not more, not less. How could I calculate this? Very easy, very simple calculation. Um, and it goes back to my the mechanism that created the bubble and that was going to now create this this uh, bust and, and long recession, which is really the, the mechanism at the, at the core of all economies. It's the money creation mechanism. Where does money come from? Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's funny because when you study economics, as I've done, um, I mean, in any discipline, whether it's chemistry or physics or whatever, you know, you, you study it at the top universities, you expect to become an expert in the important stuff in your discipline. But when you study economics, um, they don't really teach you about the money creation process and the monetary mechanism, because the leading economic theories and models, as you know, I mean, they... I mean, <laughs> The, uh, the highbrow ones, they, they don't even have any money whatsoever in their model. Um, it's an abstracted um, theoretical economy where essentially people exchange things by a barter. That's what they assume because money doesn't matter. So we might as well take it out of the equation. It just confuses things. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> let's just take money out of the equation. You know, it confuses things. You know, our system is theoretical. <laughs> That's a nice way of saying that the economy's fake. That reminds me of a Bill Hicks clip. I'm probably going to play that for you guys now uh, later on. You know, <laughs> oh, man. And who, who does this guy sound like to? Remember Ron Paul? Remember in the authoritarianism or liberty episode where Ron Paul in his farewell speech tells Congress, like, I came in here 30-some years ago with the same goals 
uh, that I have today. I have not made any progress, and it's because there is no appetite to fix these problems. There is no appetite to face the reality of what the the future of the economy and this so-called, um, you know, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Prosperity. You know what I mean? Like, are we really that prosperous anymore? You know? We're the 80s and the 90s, the height of the American empire, and now ever since the turn of the millennium, ever since 9-11, ever since all these stupid, idiotic, ridiculous laws that they've passed, which have consequently weakened the necessary laws, like I've talked about in the past, slowly but surely, slow usurpations over time, I mean, now we're going to have vaccine passports. Then they're going to unleash the next thing on us. A bunch of people are going to die. Pharmaceutical companies are going to make a killing trying to uh, research and develop the, the new vaccine. And now we're just, they're literally creating, the, you know, like we've talked about in the past, like the, the big club, they're, they're forcing with the Hegelian dialectic world events. They're creating a problem. They're, they watch the reaction to that problem. And then they already have a prepackaged, premeditated pre-planned blueprint you know plan that has been carefully carefully considered talked about funded and we're seeing it we're we're seeing that in our in our world right now people we're seeing it with the protests we're seeing it with the police brutality we're seeing it with the divide and conquer agenda we're seeing it with the media's, uh, you know, burying, killing stories, not telling you important things you need to know on purpose to further the plan. They want you to believe the show. They want you to believe everything that the mainstream media and popular culture tells you is how things are. And I'm telling you that that is the matrix. That is a prison for your mind. That is fabricated bullshit nonsense. Has no no, uh, bearing of any resemblance to anything I would term quote unquote reality. And you people that believe it, hook, line, and sinker, I feel bad for you. I don't know if you're savable. I don't know. I don't know if it's possible. I'm pulling for you. I'm pulling for you. But, you know, I'm also a pragmatic realist. (laughs) I might be idealistic uh, romantically, but uh, I'm pretty grounded in reality. <laughs> my, my feet are pretty planted, if you know what I mean. So, I don't know. I just wanted to, you know, Japan. I mean, what what did this guy say? Like, like the Imperial Palace, or, you know, was as uh, worth as much as the entire state of California at one point in time. I mean, it, 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 people. <laughs> the markets are so completely fabricated. It, it's ridiculous. I don't know how anyone can have faith in stock markets. And, and now with this whole cryptocurrency craze, I, I don't know. Too many powerful people can hold too much sway. Like you've seen what Elon Musk, he just says he's not going to take Bitcoin anymore. Boom. How much value was lost. Oh, by the way, I'm, I'm interested in Dogecoin or Dogecoin or however you pronounce it. Oh, look at that. Boom. Shot way up. I mean, people, these, these people are holding sway and they're going to centralize these markets. You know, they already did it. The, the, the Rothschild-controlled banking cartel already monopolized some of these cryptocurrencies. I can't remember where I saw the clip, but they, they've already, you know, they've already purchased such, such a portion where they have control power. 
you know, 51 plus percent, whatever it is. I don't know for sure. Stuff makes my head spin. Stocks. But, in, you know, and my, my, my biggest aversion to it is because I, I've seen the storied history of, you know, of the past that has proven to me that I don't know how much faith you can have <laughs> in these in these stocks, in the stock markets, I mean, pfft, ugh. I don't know. I'm telling you people, maybe the preppers are right. Maybe we just need to learn survival. We need to get back to basics, live off the land, form communes, form our own laws. Our own, I don't know. How are you, you going to do it? How are you going to fight this big leviathan, world domination, tyrannical government, dictatorship that's coming? What are you going to do? I think we should just do what George Carlin says. Let's just let's just get fucked up. Let's party and let's watch the freak show. Let's watch the the Titanic sink. <laughs> let's watch the Hindenburg as it falls to the ground. Let's be the band playing on the ship as the ship sinks. <laughs> That's me. That's me. I'm the guy playing I'm playing guitar. <laughs> I'm playing songs, punk rock songs as the ship slowly sinks <laughs> to its Inevitable doom. <laughs> oh, man. I want to have like a fear and loathing, like uh, Hunter S. Thompson level uh, suitcase full of uh, what to do if the end times actually come. And we're just going to take a trip. We're going psychedelic to, to the bitter end. <laughs> oh, man. Maybe I'm getting a little crazy. I don't know, people. I don't know. So in the spirit of, you know, central banks are going to tank economies. It's coming. Um, I want to show, I want to play a clip from Vice News about the homeless, uh, the homelessness problem in Austin, Texas. And it's going to talk about what the city government has done and the citizens are going to, are going to describe their, their conflict, their two conflicting uh, desires, you know, trying to figure out, you know, having the bleeding heart for your fellow man, but also realizing that, you know, y y you have to look inwardly. Your standard of living in your neighborhoods are going to change very soon. The more these jobs go away and the more these people become hopeless and helpless and need a helping hand. And it's sad. It's sad what, what, how much power these central bankers and this world government is going to have. And they're, you know, freedom's gone. Like, th these people have, hold so much sway over your life. You're so controlled, dominated, manipulated, and propagandized that, you know, we're, you know, despite all my rage, I'm still just a rat in a cage, right? <laughs> you, we're just, we're just, maybe we're already in prison. Corporate wage slaves. Corporate wage slavery. Maybe there is something to that argument. Maybe the, the lofty ideas of capitalism and free market economics and uh, you know, representative democracy, maybe that was, that's the romantic ideal. But as soon as you let the rich and the powerful and the greedy, as soon as you accept the fact that human, part of human nature is that there are psychopaths among us that will stop at nothing, that believe in a Nietzschean will to power world and will stomp on skulls and crush heads to get to the top and to get what they want. 
And no level of socialist utopia is ever going to change that. You might as well just accept it. The people that want to do good and want morals and want rational, reasoned arguments, we are the few. We are, in a, in a matter of speaking, one of these minority secret societies. And it's sad. The cult of anti-intellectualism. Remember Isaac Asimov? They've taken over. They don't want intellectualism in America anymore, people. If you want to be an intellectual, if you want to be intellectually curious, if you, if you have the courage and the ability to be intellectually honest and face the realities of this world and try to find ways to solve problems, you're the few. We are the minority in this country and probably in this world. So if we give up, people, it's over. So who do you want to be? You want to take the road you know, or do you want to take the road unknown? I've been over it a million times. Sooner or later, people, you're going to have to make a choice. You're going to have to make hard decisions. Decisions you've never, you could have never possibly dreamed that you would have to make in this life. This is where we are, people. The 21st century. The prophecies are all coming true, religious and otherwise. The Christians are saying that the Antichrist is coming. The secular humanists are saying that if we don't work together to end, to, to, to solve the environmental problem, if we don't work together to solve the race problem, and if we don't accept people regardless of their uh, gender choices, etc. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. I'm saying we got we got priorities. You know, I, if 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 America was as star-spangled awesome <laughs> as we as we think it is, and as the privileged people that live in this country claim, you know, that it is, regardless of their level of knowledge about the reality behind it, underlying it. I don't know, people. We're going to have to find a way to be honest with ourselves and admit where the problems are. And then we're going to have to prioritize. I mean, you remember? Remember the AI guys? Remember uh, General Grown and uh, uh, Robert Work? Houston, we have a problem. Other countries who don't believe in freedom and democracy and don't share our ethics and morals are going to dominate artificial intelligence by the year 2030, right? Henry Kissinger has been talking about the rise of China. We just heard Richard Werner tell us about the rise of China. People, <laughs> we better start paying attention to what's going on around this world because before you know it, there might be tanks in your streets and there might be jackboots on the ground kicking in your door Taking your stuff, taking your money, and if 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 the best predictor of future behavior is past behavior, we know how warriors in in battles tend to act when they revert back to the more animal instinctive sides of we human beings, and rape and pillage and plunder. You ready for that, people? You ready to police your own neighborhoods because the police aren't there anymore? 
And now it's you versus the government. <laughs> the federal government jackboots that hold the legal authority monopoly to kill you. The monopoly on force. It's over, people. They got you by the balls. I mean, I don't know. I don't know what we're going to do. These tents are less than a minute from my front porch, you know, and they're on the direct route on the way to another camp at the river, so they pass my house all the time. I understand why they're here and don't want to leave, but we've lost our library. We've lost our neighborhood. I can't walk down this street with my daughter and, and feel okay about it. Like, my house is on the other end of that alley. Donnie Knutson bought his house in this neighborhood eight years ago. Since then, a lot has changed. In 2019, Austin tried a more humane and progressive approach to homelessness, ending its ban on camping, which made it legal to sleep in most public spaces. The change meant unhoused people weren't saddled with fines or criminal records for sleeping on the street, but it also led to a boom in encampments in residential areas. These are all like 1920s homes, and they all have historic status. No one wants to live here anymore. It's hard because I, I do view the homeless people here as my neighbors. Where are they going to go? Like, the city hasn't told us what the plan is, partly because they don't have a plan. Now a group of Austinites says the city made a mistake. A campaign called Save Austin Now, started largely by local conservatives, has pushed a proposition onto the ballot that would force the city to reverse course. Voters will decide on May 1st. For a progressive like Knutson, it's an agonizing ethical question, one he and his neighbors confront every day. Lifting the ban was not a solution, but putting the ban back in place isn't a solution either. I don't think either one of them are solutions. So what is the solution? Well, <laughs> a lot of money in housing. I, you know, I don't know. I mean, most big cities are having these problems. What do you think is going to happen with the vote? I don't know, because I, I mean, if you talk to Donnie's friends, you know, they're going to all vote against it. Most of my friends that I know, um, and even some fairly really it, liberal it's, friends, it's gonna are, are going to, you know, vote to reinstate the ban. I think I'm going to vote against it, just so I have, but I hope there's a lot of people that vote for it. And that's weird to say. Like, it troubles me that I just said that. Because you want to feel good about how you vote, but you want it to go away. It's messed up. I don't want them arrested. I don't want them put in a van and driven to another neighborhood, because then that neighborhood's just got a problem. That's not the answer. Do you think if you had seen this issue happening in another city and it wasn't happening in your neighborhood, you would feel differently? Once you're in the middle of it, you change your mind of how you approach this situation. But as your safety declines, so does your compassion. Every, every time I have to pick up human shit, my liberalness just got lowered one, but one more notch. Austin isn't the only progressive city dealing with a rise in homeless encampments in public areas. The coronavirus pandemic has sent millions of Americans into poverty, and cities like Los Angeles, Oakland, and Portland are struggling with how to handle their growing tent cities. Austin's last official count found more than 2,500 people experiencing homelessness. Mayor Steve Adler says ending the camping ban hasn't caused the number to go up, it's just made the problem more visible. Was it a mistake to lift the ban? 
It was absolutely not a mistake to lift the ban. Uh, I think that sometimes you really need disruptive action if you're trying to make change. Do you think it's reasonable for people to be fed up with the situation? Yes, I would hope that people in our community would look at the face, uh, the extent of homelessness in our community and be fed up. But be fed up in a way that points them to helping our neighbors and not fed up with the answer being, make this so that I just can't see it. If it does pass, what happens to those people? If it does pass, I think that it's going to result in a greater number of people going back to the woods and to the streams uh, where they were less visible, less safe, less protected, less able to be tied to, to resources and help and assistance. So I'm concerned about it passing and creating an expectation in some parts of our community that somehow or another these people will, will at that point disappear because they won't. Last week, the city finally announced a comprehensive proposal that would put federal COVID relief cash towards housing for 3,000 people over the course of the next three years. In the meantime, the daily job of addressing the needs of the city's unhoused falls to people like Wes Bickham. Hey, Mo. Hey, how you doing? Good. I need to really see a caseworker. Okay. I'm sure I can get somebody out here. Appreciate Thank you, sir. it. I think most people would agree that we shouldn't have human beings living like this. And so when something comes up that looks like a possible answer for that, it's really easy to hop on that and say, they people don't deserve to live like that. We need to ban uh, people camping wherever they want. People don't understand how many folks there are and how limited resources there are. The family that you're evicting with no place to go, it's, it's, is on your mind thinking about where are they tonight? Where did they go? And that's extremely hard to keep doing this job, knowing that there's no place for them to go. So do you know about this camping ban that might go into effect if, it's pa if it passes? I've been hearing about it. What would that do to you guys? You guys be gonna break the law. What do you guys need? Place to live. Place to live. And homeless shelters, I've been in them. And everything I own, they took. So why should you live in a homeless shelter when they want to take from you? So that doesn't feel like a good option for you either? No, it's not. That's why I'm here. No. And do I hate being out here? Yes, I do. I really do. Um, sad. That's sad. You know, that's tough. That's a struggle. I'm sure that's a struggle for any of us to listen to. We don't. We don't want our fellow neighbors to be that hopeless out in the streets, no choices uh, for, you know, employment and maybe who knows what's going on in their personal lives. Maybe they're not capable of holding a job, whatever. Who knows? Maybe they've, they've dropped out of the system by choice and maybe they're already, you know, living out of a backpack and maybe that's a more pure way for humans to live. And for some of you, <laughs> I'm telling you, that may be our inevitable future, people, where no one can afford a house because of hyperinflation. Nobody can purchase gas. The central bankers have created bubbles to the level where there are no jobs. Everything, uh, all of your basic needs are going to cost astronomical amounts of money. And we're going to be the next, you know, Venezuela, or we're going to be the next Japan or whatever. Uh, 
sooner or later, you're going to have to be out in your community. Your community is going to have to get together. People are going to have to have conversations about what we're going to do. Where are people, what are we going to do for services for all these people that are out of work by, for whatever reason, doesn't matter. That number is going to grow. The more that these governments have no plans, like this guy said, you know, we're waiting for word from the government, but it doesn't seem like they're talking about it. doesn't seem like there's a plan. And that's how it is. I mean, I live in Minneapolis. Are you kidding me? This has got to be some of the worst city government I've ever seen. I mean, it's ridiculous. I mean, our city, uh, our mayor, Governor Waltz, and Keith Ellison, I think they lost two of the court cases uh, against, I think it was the churches. I think I posted it. And I think that part of the reason why we're opening everything up uh, earlier than expected and, and removing the mask mandate is because these politicians got beat. They got beat a judge ruled against them, that they abused their, their you know, emergency powers, and they kept extending it for themselves. And maybe they thought that they were doing what's best for everybody, you know? But, you know, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. At what point are we going to say to ourselves, individually, at what point are you going to look inwardly and say to yourself, maybe it's my responsibility to Go meet with my neighbors. Have community meetings. Exercise your right to assembly, your right to organize. Try it. And if the government federal jackboots kick in your door and tell you that you're not supposed to be meeting, then th there's your sign. It's over. It's over. The American empire is over. Now we are going to live in a one-world government, totalitarian uh, dictatorship, police state, surveillance Orwellian world that's the future it's common people I'm telling you okay I'm telling you uh, I know I know I hate I hate that I I, I don't want to get so doom and gloom about this people but there are so many problems and it's overwhelming like where do you start right what do you do what can one person do right I don't know educate yourself spread knowledge do we got to do something people oh man hope you guys are liking the show send me an email Andrew for America 1984 at gmail.com. Check out the website, politicsandpunkrockpodcast.com. Post in the lyrics of majority of the songs I've been playing on the podcast. Uh, in the blog section, um, having trouble tracking down a few lyric sets at the moment, but I'll figure it out. Just need to have a couple more conversations with a few people. I'll get it. I'll get them up there. Uh, I know some of you really like uh, reading the lyrics and having a little archive. <clears throat> excuse me, archive of sweet punk rock songs and uh, lyric sheets to check out, as well as uh, some of my stupid pontification blog posts. Uh, and then some of the stories that I've told on the show are posted there. And uh, if there's something that you want to find, uh, you want to know where I found it, um, something interesting to you that I've talked about on the show or a clip I've played, just you know, shoot me an email. <clears throat> excuse me. And uh, I will inform you of where I found my information. Uh, I know my buddy Sam's got show notes for his podcast. Uh, I don't really, I'm not going to do that. Um, I'm not, you know, I'm not lying to you. I don't have an agenda. I'm not trying to, you know, to hide my, my ideas and my thoughts. And, you know, I don't really believe uh, devoutly in anything anymore. The older I get, the more... Everything is a working theory. Everything's malleable. Everything is, uh, you know, you got to make the best decisions uh, with the information and with the tools that you have. And 
only until the quality of your information and the quality of your tools get better. Uh, only then can you make better decisions and, you know, look back at history, people. We've been through a lot of the stuff we're facing already before. We've, we've been through it. You just got to go look. You just got to go look it up. You just got to learn. You know? I don't know. Do you want to have a vested interest in the outcome? of this experiment in freedom and democracy here in the United States of America? Or should we just George Carlin it, people? Should we just be like, you know what? Pfft. This freak show is amazing. Let's just watch the ship sink. I don't know. I don't know how I feel. Just interesting stuff to think about. And that's really all I'm doing on this podcast, people. I just, I just want you guys to think about... Think about being a part of a world outside of the mainstream media, knowing that there's more to life than your TV screens and your social media. You know, I know you gotta, I mean, I know we have to use our smart smartphones and our computers and our screens to listen to podcasts like this. I know, it's a double-edged sword. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's There's positives and negatives to everything. Everything's a work in progress. And just like, and, and you know what? Including yourselves, including myself, including all of us. We're all works in progress. That's why you got to cut each other a break. That's why you got to be a little more tolerant of others, their actions and their point of view. You have to be the better person. You have to, you know, be able to get slapped in the face and then and not retaliate because you're better, because you are of more moral fiber. We got to get back to that, people. We got to get back to some type of morality, some type of ethical philosophies that we can all share, that we can base the future of our civilization on. I don't know. How we do it? I don't know. I don't know. I'm just saying, let's identify, let's identify the problems and let's agree that they're problems and then we'll just go from there. So here are a few problems to end the episode today. Bill Gates is an example of a select small group of people that are trying to control and dominate every aspect of this world. Okay? So that's a problem. <laughs> uh, uh, secret societies exist and have existed for centuries and have been working in concert in secret, uh, you know, behind the scenes outside of the purview of the belligerent masses. <laughs> and they've been probably running the show uh, for centuries. So that's, you know, maybe that's a problem. I don't know. Maybe an intellectual elite is the way we should operate. I don't know. I'm not taking a side. I'm not trying to tell you what to think. I'm just saying. There's two sides to every story. Let's talk about those sides, you know. Let's have the problem reaction part and maybe we'll come to a solution. I don't know. Who knows, right? And then central banks have been tanking economies for years. That's another problem that Ron Paul talked to you people about. Ron Paul said, you know, you can't run and hide from what, you know, the central banks are, are doing to, and fiat currency is doing to the economy. Can't run, can't run and hide, people. Can't run away. Can't, can't run, uh, look, at the, look at the national debt, the deficit right now. Are you kidding me? 
is insolvent. It, it is unsustainable. It, it is going to be a bitter, hard truth that is going to punch every American citizen in the face eventually. You better start learning your survival skills. You better start, you know, cooking with wood. <laughs> you better learn how to make fires with, uh, you know, you know, rolling sticks together in, in some kindling. <laughs> You better go walk out in, in the woods and uh, let the bugs bite you so you can get, you know, immunities to all that shit. I mean, uh, people, I don't know. I don't know what's coming. It's not looking good, though. Thanks for listening. Uh, I'm going to try to stay more positive. I'm going to try to stay optimistic. In fact, the next episode, I think I'm, I'm go it's going to be all optimism and all motivation and all let's pump each other up and let's re remember who we are. We are human beings. We are American citizens, and we are capable of overcoming any obstacle that is put in front of us. Let's, let's quit being part of the problem, and let's all work together and start being part of the solution for you, for me, for all of us. Thanks for listening. I love you guys. Take care of each other out there. Let's wise up and face hard truths, and let's have the courage and the strength to accept it and move past it and make better decisions. Okay? I love you guys. We'll see you next time. Thank you. Good night. Episode 34, I believe. We're going we're going to motivation town, people. It's going to be it's going to be fun. Okay? So, thanks for listening. I hope you guys are enjoying the podcast. Come back uh next week, episode 34. I love you guys. Take care. <laughs>